we often think about risks as things that we have to mitigate or manage or minimize. Um, but really, I'm saying, how do you seek risk, but do it in a really intentional and strategic way? Here's what I know. Women, myself included, are leaving the workforce in droves. And right now, work culture is really being redefined to accommodate a changing landscape, but it's not happening quick enough. And I'll ask you, if you are gainfully employed, do you truly love what you do? Do you feel like your work is meaningful and you and your uh, contributions are intrinsically valued? Do you feel psychologically safe at work where you can speak your mind, even if it's in dissent? and feel like you will not only be heard, but not be at risk for losing your position or respect? Is there a clear path for you to advance? And do you have the support you need to do so? These are all tough questions to answer. And a lot of times people, uh, from what I can tell, they like what they do, but it's not necessarily fulfilling. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And I think, again, the, the landscape is changing. And according to the Institute of Women's Leadership, globally, women hold just 24% of senior leadership positions. The U.S. lags behind the global, global average at only 21%. Women represent 45% of the S&P 500 workforce and 54% in the U.S. overall. But only 4% of those uh, women are CEOs only 4%. Why is that? How can women advance in the workplace? And not only advance, but what about changing the work culture so women are not only leading, but thriving and feeling fulfilled and bringing other women with them? Well, turns out the answers may already be in your hands. And I invited Christy Hunter Arscott on the show today. Christy is a, an accomplished Rhodes Scholar with two master's degrees on gender studies from Oxford University. She's an award-winning thought leader and advisor and author of the new book, Begin Boldly. We talked about the toughest questions facing women in the workplace today, and Christy gave really practical advice on how to take control of your career and in turn change the landscape. I'm so excited to jump into this one with you. But before I we do, a quick reminder that you can hear all of the Culture Changers episodes ad-free and get some bonuses and goodies and exclusive content when you become a Culture Changers member at patreon.com forward slash culture changers. A big fat thank you to Juliana Rumbaugh, who has joined the membership team and we're so grateful for you. Also, whenever you become a member, an angel will get their wings when you do. Here's my chat with Christy Hunter Arscott. Congratulations, you just launched your first book, Begin Boldly. Tell me about it. Yeah, so it actually, it officially drops next week, August 2nd. August 2nd is the, the launch date. So I don't know when this is live. It might've already- Probably after, yeah, it'll be yeah. it'll be launched, yeah. So it should be, yeah, launched and out there by the time you're listening to this. And 
Yeah, the whole focus of the book is on how women can take more intentional risks in their careers. And mm. that to date, we often think about risks as things that we have to mitigate or manage or minimize. Um, but really, I'm saying, how do you seek risk, but do it in a really intentional and strategic way? Mm. So I think it's the perfect time to talk about this now. So uh, from a work culture perspective, from a diversity, inclusion, from a female, like the time in our our world right now where Roe v. Wade is overturned, you know, as women, our rights are being rolled all the way back. It feels like... Um, uh, it it just feels like we we are going back in time, and so as we're trying to advance ourselves from a career perspective, from an executive standpoint, I'd be interested to know, Christy. I imagine through your book, which I've not yet had a chance to read, but I can't wait to get my hands on it. What do you notice when you look out in the landscape of the workplace, and what do you what do you see there? What are the trends? Okay, so there's so many trends, and first, I didn't want to. I don't want to skip over the fact that, you know, you just mentioned this just critical thing that's happened politically and in terms of our rights and autonomy. Um, and one thing I wanted to note is as disheartening and depressing um, as the state of affairs are to me and to many others, um, one thing that is positive is that there's so much momentum and focus around these issues now. And when I, I was one of the first uh, Rhodes Scholars to go to Oxford and study women's studies. And at the time, it was questioned. People said, why not law? Why not medicine? They even said to me, these were the issues of our mother's generation. These were the issues of the 60s and 70s, not ours. And now there is no denying that these are, this is everyone's issue. And I almost feel like my career focused on gender and women has gone from almost like a side stream to a mainstream. Mm. Um, and so for I, it's hard sometimes to even imagine any silver lining of the state of play right now. But if there's anything, it's a deep recognition that there are gender and racial battlefields that are that we really need to be in the front line of, um, particularly within the U.S. context. So. That's one thing. Um, in regards to culture, which was your question around the workplace, there's a yeah. lot of different trends I'm seeing. But one thing I wanted to relate to the political state um, right now and, you know, uh, women's rights is that as an employer, if you're listening to this, what women are going through that are your employees might be um, incredibly emotionally trying um, there may there may be some there needs to be some level of recognition in most cases that you are all at different places right now and dealing with this in different ways and how someone shows up at work may be impacted by what we're seeing in kind of the, the women's rights landscape. Hmm. So as we try and navigate this, I'm wondering because I would imagine that managers, leaders would probably need uh, there's certainly a dose of empathy and asking questions, but I also think it's redefining how we interact and the interpersonal relationships that happen at work. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the years about rehumanizing work. And I sometimes think we try to overcomplicate it when really it's just like core of humanity and 
just the human experience is connectivity. And what I heard in my research when I went out and interviewed early career women in particular, they said like, look, we want more than this woman's bio and accolades and photo. We want to know the woman behind the bio. Mm. So what I encourage leaders to do is to show the vulnerability, to show the stories of triumph and defeat and failures. They're looking for, people are looking for the richness of people's stories that are relatable. And they don't just want kind of like the, the smoke screen of the yeah. highlight reel, particularly in this day of social media and online, we, we often just see those highlight reels and, I, I, and people are hungry for more. So w- your book, Begin Boldly, what are you hoping to accomplish with this book? What are you hoping that the reader walks away with? Obviously, if you're looking at the landscape of work culture, mm-hmm. you passionately have researched and put this together. What's the end goal? I want to empower and equip more women to make bold moves in their careers and lives and build those bold and brilliant careers. So Ultimately, I want to, it's not just about inspiring people, it's about equipping people with the skill sets and mindsets and frameworks and methods to be bolder. And that's why I think there's no better time, going back to our beginning of this discussion, to be bold, to actually have a voice, to take more risks. What does that look like? And women are often taught to kind of play it safe, play it small, Mm. not take up space. But it's not about reckless risk-taking. It's not about, you know, jump off a cliff and you've never paraglided before. It's about having the toolkit, methods, mindsets to do that and a roadmap. So really being intentional and strategic. So that's the end goal. I would love to continue to just equip people to, and particularly women, just to lead bold lives and careers and irrespective of whatever sphere they're working in. So I have to say, Christy, you know, just to give you a personal background on this. So I left my corporate job. I've been in technology sales. I left my corporate job in April of this year to pursue my career, my passions. And I'll tell you a lot of the listeners and the feedback that I get are people that feel like they're stuck in their jobs. And so they are great at what they do. They're high powered executives. They're people that are you know, they, they have climbed the ladder, they've done what they were supposed to do. And they feel like, well, if I leave, what do I even do? What do I even do? You know, like it's fine. It's paying the bills. I've got comfort. You know, do I even have the right to want more? And it almost is like a cage of comfort. And so I wonder, what do you say to those people that are, feel a yearning to get out, but don't know even where to start. Yeah. Um, there's so many people and I just think there's this quote and it's, um, I'm just thinking back. It's like, what are you going to do with this one wonderful, wondrous life you have? And, and, uh, and, and it's essentially, I think we, we have a chance to cultivate and craft our careers and really get in the driver's seat. And it's very easy to come up with every reason why not to do something. And that often holds us back in those cages you talk about, right? Um, To people that are hesitant though, I mean, in the book, I lay out a framework and how you assess whether a risk is worth making. And it's assessing like your motivation, your opportunity, your opportunity cost, your vision, your future state vision, your end game planning, your support system. So it relates to taking bold moves and it's an acronym for moves. 
And that will help people assist, um, assess whether it's a risk worth taking and also increase your appetite for risk. The other thing though is there's, I talk about the three mindsets you really need to cultivate to be bold. And the one critical skill set is risk taking, but it requires three mindsets. And one of those is the agile mindset. And I've got a whole chapter on agile experimentation. And that is before you make a huge leap that you may be nervous to make, how do you start smaller scale experiments to actually try out things um, before you kind of scale them? So how do you start small and then scale? And I think we can learn a lot from businesses. I mean, they pilot things, they experiment with things before mm-hmm. they do a broader rollout. And why can't we do that in our own lives? So for someone that's like, I don't even know, well, what if you tried something for a month, you know, on the side? Or what if you asked to repurpose, let's say you've always been passionate about design, but your day-to-day job as an executive of X um, largely involves Y. You know, why couldn't you negotiate with your company for, let's try this for a month. I'd like to spend 10 to 20% of my week um, allocated to doing this specific strategic project on design. In a, in a month, we'll touch base on how that's going. Here are the metrics that matter that we'll use to see if it was a success. And then we'll start and scale. Or I'd like to work from home one day a week. And then during that time, or, or have a reduced work schedule so that you can repurpose things and experiment with things on the side. So there's lots of neat ways to get over that. Um, the last bit of advice I'll give, and this is, helps me a lot, which is I think there's been too much focus to date on confidence and not enough on courage. So mm. a lot of the discourse says, you know, we're about cultivating confidence in women and girls. And I get the intention, but what I have found is the most successful, bold, amazing women I have ever met. They do not show up confidently every day. When I interview them for my projects, they say, why are you interviewing me, even though they're CEO of one of the world's largest organizations? But what they do do is show up courageously every day. And so I would love to leave all the listeners on this line with choose courage over confidence. And that means that even when you're feeling the most self-doubt, the the least confident, you can still act courageously and confidence will often be a byproduct or output. But if we're waiting to feel confident before changing careers or pivoting or making a bold move one way or the other, we'll never, that feeling, that elusive feeling will likely never come. And it'll hold us back from building like the most amazing careers we could ever imagine. What a great perspective. And as I'm thinking about you know, I think about some of the people that listen to this and they are executives of huge blue chip organizations. And, you know, on one aspect, my, my, I don't know if it's devil's advocate is saying, yeah, but I don't even have time to consider something else. So I just know I'm not fulfilled. You know, I, I know I, I can do this job. I have, done everything and check the box and have all this stuff. So I feel the resistance or, or have noticed the resistance coming up in me of how do I even negotiate something that I don't even know outside of these skills, what I could do. And so I wonder about having an interest and understanding that there are, you know, there are people that have kind of interest, you know, they may not have explored it or thought about it, but there's also that thought of, you know, I do like design, but I don't have time. Or I do like this, but I don't know if I like it enough. 
like it, it doesn't really pay, you know, like for me, I um, became a dance instructor in uh, 2020 and I'm in my mid forties, you know, and I had never danced before. And I'm like, Hmm, how well, they don't pay shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like being a dance instructor doesn't pay anything. So there's like a realistic way of like having these hopes and dreams and going from the boardroom to the dance floor, you know, who knows? And so I think that the practical mind can cloud some of the courage that you talk about. I can be very confident on the dance floor, but the courage to go out and say, I'm going to, you know, make this my life's work. That's not what I want to do for my life, but to have those options, those things that light you up that you can pursue, how do you figure out a framework to, and I, maybe that is part of the, is this a risk worth taking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's definitely a part of that. Um, in the, in the assessment pieces, like, does this make sense to take? Because every, every risk that you take has trade-offs, opportunity costs, and we need to face those and come up with an end game plan for like, what if becoming a dance instructor doesn't work out? What if it does? What am I doing? Right. Yeah. But you're right. We also need to, like the way that our brains are wired, there's a lot of research that we're more likely to think about the worst case scenario outcomes versus the best case. And we're totally likely to overanalyze. So we have to move past that. So one suggestion um, I have is I, a lot of the women that I work with and coach get caught in this cycle of analysis paralysis and that's mm-hmm. action. Mm, so yeah. I am very big on erring on the side of action. And that's actually infused throughout the book is that, I see a lot of women aspiring to take risks and make bold moves, like you said, but, but struggling to translate that into action. So at the end of every chapter, there's an aspiration to action exercise to help. I love that. that, Right. Because that's what we want to do. Like our lives would be amazing if we could close the gap between our aspirations and our actions. But one insight I wanted to share is, um, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, but Herminia Arbara is an amazing professor and researcher out of INSEAD. And she did a lot of work on the fact that we've been taught to analyze, then act. Let me think about all of the pros and cons and then, and then act. Does this make sense? And yes, there, are, there is some benefit to analyzing. And I, I mean, I have frameworks to help you think through it um, in the book. But there are also limitations. And so she encourages us to flip the script and act, then analyze. And it reminds me of like when I was finishing my you know, grad work at Oxford, I knew what I cared about, but not what career that would lead to. And I remember my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, saying like, you're not going to know until you try. And it's so interesting. It's such a simple concept, but it's the, it's similar to Ibarra who said, act then analyze. And so for the people on this call, if you spent less time analyzing and trust me, I've been there before, but more time just being like, how can I create a small scale experiment? How can I try something in a lower risk environment before I decide whether to do it? Um, what does that look like? That really helps you. Plus the focus on courage will help you move forward. So I love that idea. Um, and I wonder, as you've gone through your research, where do you think women struggle the most? And, um, gosh, there's so many areas. Um, but there's so many things that we've tapped into that are great. We just need to do more of them. I think one of the biggest areas women struggle with is 
what we were just alluding to, which is getting out of your own head, right? Is that a worthiness thing? Is that a worthiness, a self-worth thing? Is that cultural or is that personal? So it's so interesting. There's so much research on things. Is it nature, nurture? Is it society in certain ways? Is it our internal, um, something, you know, biological? I mean, there's lots of different theories on that. All I know ultimately is how it presents. And from the work of Carol Dweck onwards um, on mindset, it's really been this fear of failure and this idea that if I fail, I am a failure. And that's what I call Mm. identity outcome conflation. So if I get an F... Say that again. I like that. It's identity and outcome conflation. So the outcome of something becomes my identity. And I can't, you know unlink those two. Well, for men, if they fail, it's more likely that that failure is their data or insights for improvement. And so one of the biggest things that women grapple with is that mindset that Carol Dweck talked about. I talked about her research um, in my book, but uh, and really build upon it is interrupting that and understanding that failure is not fatal. It is a reward when you take a risk and you fail. It can be a reward and growth as long as you have the right methods and mindsets to learn from it. So this whole idea Mm. that we've got to be perfect, we can't ever mess up, that is what holds us back. But actually the most powerful lessons and things that propel our growth are the risks we take that initially seem like, oh, they've set us back, but then propel us further than we would have ever gone by consistently playing it safe. Um, so that's something that's definitely one of the main things that I work with women on. So where are you, I I know you work with a lot of organizations. What are some organizations doing that are getting it right? Yeah, great question. So one thing you mentioned is really important is we have to address these issues. It's not just saying it's a woman's issue and therefore here's your career toolkit, right? It's also what are organizations doing to create cultures where women and underrepresented groups can create brilliant careers can rise and thrive. And so there's a, there's a number of organizations that are doing great things, but one in particular I'm thinking about is like, they're using this concept of growth mindset from Carol's Weck to create what they call a growth mindset culture. So they've applied the learnings from her research on essentially boys and girls and learning outcomes, but they're creating cultures and cultural behavior codes that are based on, this is how we respond to failure. This is how we respond to negative outcomes. You know, capabilities aren't fixed, they're fluid. So those are some things overall that are working really, really well. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, I often use this analogy that by only focusing on senior level or executive women, it's the same as plugging only the final fissure or hole in a pipeline that has many leaks along the way. And so we're leaking Mm. out earlier, earlier, earlier. We're losing aspiration and confidence. Women are lagging men, they're leaving... You know, and then we're like, oh, let's start an executive women's program plug. But by that point, we've got all these other ones. So the great organizations are focusing on women earlier on in the pipeline. And that's really why I wrote this book is why don't we target women sooner in those first 10 to 15 years and not wait till it's too late and really start to strategically plug those holes earlier So whether it be um, one of my clients, I'm offering uh, transition coaching for women that are coming back from maternity leave to help them reintegrate, think strategically about next steps. That's somewhere where women are so needed. Oh, my God, that's so needed. So much so. So those are just a couple examples for you. 
So I saw this on your website. This may seem like it's out of left field because I don't really know what it means, but what is interruption bias? Interrupting bias. Yeah. Interrupting bias. What is that? So essentially what we have to do, that's another great question that's related to organizations. So there's a lot of bias that exists in the workplace. And one in particular is affinity bias, which is like, likes, like. So we're more likely to gravitate towards people that are like us. They could like the Mm. same sports team. They could have the same interests. They're often of the same gender. Um, They could have a similar background or be part of the same fraternity. So in male dominated workplaces, it's often really easy for people to out of human nature, hire people like them, promote people like them, give high value assignments to people like them, you know, um, uh, give more actionable feedback to people like them. You know, there's all of these things in terms of affinity bias, but then the people that are disadvantaged are the people that are in the non-affinity position, right? Someone that they don't relate to. So we've got to actually find ways to interrupt that bias because you can never de-bias an organization or individual. They're just cognitive shortcuts. We all have them. But it's about how do we create systems and processes and checks and balances to interrupt it. So one example might be um, some companies are playing around with removing the name and school and critical identifiers of individual in the first round of screening interviews, right? Mm-hmm. When I was at Oxford, they were viewed they um, removed names from examination papers because they realized they did this test. And if Christy submitted the exact same exam as John, they would be marked differently. So we only had like goals. Yeah, yeah. So that's a system redesign. Um, And there's actually some great work out of Harvard um, uh, uh, called What Works. I'm actually seeing if I have the book here. But um, it's focused on gender, but it would be related. There's so many design things that you can do in organizations. Yeah. So it's by Iris Bonet and it's called what works gender equality by design. And it's the whole idea that since we can't debias ourselves, how do we work to interrupt it through organizational and cultural changes in an organization? Can I uh, anecdotally tell you a story about this where I'm thinking about it? So I'm a person that um, have worked in the bro culture for a long time, technology uh, sales, you know, and so, so many of my counterparts would get deals by going fishing, by going golfing, by taking them out, getting shit faced and, you know, uh, taking them to fancy steakhouses. For me, I don't golf. I don't care about sports. I don't want to, Hey, I don't really drink very much. And so like going out and getting wasted, but it, it was so, um, it's, it's, so commonplace. And that is, you know, as a sale, it's so old school. It's it, again, it's like that bro culture, the corporate bro culture of, uh, of being able to do that. But I always felt like I, it was a disadvantage, you know, like I, that I didn't quite know how to overcome back in the day. I think that now it's a little different because of the hybrid stuff, but I always felt like I, I don't, I don't have any energy or motivation or want to do that. And am I being, is that a disadvantage that I don't kind of buck up and, um, 
and do it in that same way where people do bond because of that like bias. Yes. So I, yes. I, I imagine I'm not the only person who feels that way. No, I mean, I've worked with female CEOs that say that there's an executive ski trip every year, but it's only men that go and, um, and she's never invited. And it's just a really interesting dynamic. I, I met a, another person where I heard an example of her trying to change the dynamics of a certain culture and, they did a whole trip around, you know, beer drinking and go-karts and, you know, car racing. It's not that women don't like those things, but yeah. it's not that it's just not being considerate to a, to a range of interests irrespective of gender. And so when I work with companies talking about organizational design and things that interrupt bias is, you know, you think about, for instance, one thing I, I talk about, I talk about micro inequities. And these are these small little acts that build up over time that then can influence someone's career aspirations or get them to leak out of the pipeline. And one would be coming into a meeting every single time and people talking about an exclusive rather than inclusive topic, you know, the sports game that happened last mm. weekend, the golf. Yeah. For some people, it's talking about kids where other people are childless. You know, they're thinking about those topics. It's also about when is the meaningful networking being done? So one thing I'll ask companies is like, who's being left out of this if you organize it at 5 or 6 p.m.? It might be women. It might be men. It might also be a t time zone. Like it might be the, it's great for the London office to have this virtual event then, but not the New York office. And so you really have to take that lens when you look at these different activities and think about how can we create the most inclusive culture? Um, because the things that you're talking about, it's so commonplace, but it's actually more and more awareness is coming in around. Yeah. It's not the way to run an organization that's allowing people from different backgrounds to rise and thrive. Yeah. So what would you say the difference is between inclusivity and belonging? Yeah. So it's interesting. I feel like diversity is the numbers more, it's like visible. Um, but I will say that there are often, I mean, I describe diversity in terms of the visible and invisible. I think about an iceberg and I think about what you see about me is, you know, I'm blonde and I'm female and, you know, but what's under the waterline are the invisible aspects of, of my diversity. But in general, when you think about diversity in organizations, you think more about demographics. Um, I've, I think inclusion is more, um, like having a voice, feeling heard, um, and, and, and there's all of these different indicators of inclusivity. But then belonging takes it in a step further, and it's almost like feeling like I'm part of something bigger, and I'm part of something with purpose that really leverages my viewpoints and values my contributions in a really meaningful way. Um, but it's been interesting for me over the years just to watch the evolution of terminology, diversity, equity, or equality, inclusion, um, uh, belonging, and then social justice. There's been such a movement around mm -hmm. so many different terms, but irrespective, I think the end goal that we're getting to is very similar, but we're changing some of the semantics around what we're calling it. I think we're moving forward, <laughs> at least from the acknowledgement perspective, you know, or at least recognition. And I'm looking at you, Christy, and to get personal, you are beautiful. You're a freaking knockout, blonde hair, Rhodes Scholar, Oxford. 
I imagine that you must have experienced a lot of bias and a lot of, uh, um, I don't know what your experience is. What was it like for you? Did you feel included? How did this become so important to you? And I, I, I don't mean yeah. to belittle your looks and I'm not belittling your looks, but I can't help but notice that you're, uh, a freaking knockout. And that does play into a lot of people's biases. Yeah. Um, I think physicality does play into things. And I do think it's interesting. I do this. I've never been asked this question. So first of all, I'm, I'm just, I'm like thinking like, Whoo, how do I take this one on? What am I going to unpack? Um, but I, I will say that there's this video that I often show at the beginning of some of the bias sessions, educational sessions I run in companies. And it starts with, for me, bias is, and I ask everyone to complete how they experience bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I had to think long and hard about like, what is it that I wanted to summarize? Because we all experience bias, every single one of us in different ways, shapes and forms, um, depending on our demographics or how we show up in this world. And for me, two things came to mind. One is for me, bias is always having to prove that I'm academically qualified, right? Like I feel like in that sense, there's always the, when you walk into a space and people assume something before you open your mouth or talk about your research, but always having to lead with that. And that's particularly hard as a woman, because we face the double bind where if we, it's hard to be likable and competent. And that is something that many people navigate. So that is one way that I think I and many other women um, experience it. But the other way, bias. I mean, I'm also on the end of positive bias, which is, and and I use this example, um, because I'm in a mixed race marriage, which is bias for me is always being given the benefit of the doubt. So if I walk into a store and pick up a sweater and forget to take the tag off and I walk out, no one's running after me, right? If I'm knocking on a door late at night because I forgot something and the store's closed, they're going to let me in, right? So, so those, that is also the other side. And it's really important to realize both while my Mm. husband, you know, he was a surgical resident at Harvard and we lived in a building where he was the only person of color and he'd be locking up his bike at night and people would come out thinking he's stealing it. Mm. So, So your question is, is so powerful, but I just wanted to admit that there's, there's ways that I struggle and I have struggled in my career and life with the, the, the bias around, you know, uh, education or background or anything. But then there's also other ways where I know that I've been given the benefit of the doubt. And that recognition is so important. The last thing I wanted to share with you is that I went through a period and I talk a little bit about this in the book, but I, I entered kind of the world of consulting and, um, I, for anyone on the line, and we didn't even talk about this earlier, but I'm originally from Bermuda. And so is I, that right? Yeah. So I'm born and raised in Bermuda. Um, and I did my undergrad at Brown. I didn't even leave, you know, Bermuda until that stage. And, um, and anyone that knows me knows like, I, I love bright colors and I just, there's so many different things, you know, I have a big personality and, 
And I remember going and working in consulting in New York and I started to wear all black and not wear makeup Mm. and not wear my turquoise jewelry and tie my hair back because I've got long blonde hair and, you know, downplay everything about me. You were dimming your light. Yeah. And so it took me a while to get that back. But that was almost something that, to your question, that I was trying to kind of counteract bias so that I could kind of slide in and do the work without yeah. those kind of negative connotations. But it didn't work for me. <laughs> no. So, yeah. Why is this so important to you? This so work? in terms of women's issues overall. Yeah. Yeah. I've cared about. Where did that come from? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I got asked this years ago and I had to dig deep. I had to think back. I said, how long have I cared about this? And I thought back and when I was around 11 years old, I was in my drama class and my teachers asked me if I would try out for the public speaking and debating team the next day, 11 years old. And she said, go home and prepare a three minute speech. And the next day I got there and my classmates presented on their favorite foods or cuisines, their trip to France in the summer, their favorite extracurricular activity. And I had gone home and knocked on the rectory door of my priest at my Catholic church and interviewed my priest for two hours about why women couldn't be priests in the Catholic church. At huh. seven. And then I gave this speech just on why, why I didn't think this made sense. And so it's so funny. You don't always know where it originates from, but you know that you see that that was the first time. Injustice. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think I've always cared about issues of social exclusion and injustice. And so even when I look back as a child and saw certain kids not being played with or being isolated, or I definitely always had that radar. And this is just another lens of like, how people experience exclusion in this world. And I think we'd all be in a better place if we focused a little bit more on minimizing the exclusion just because of difference. And if you look at our political landscape, it's just, uh, it's, it's not just in our organizations. We really need to focus on that from a society level. I agree with you 100%. And there are some studies that have come out that obviously, um, you live in America, I'm assuming. Where are you? (laughs) (laughs) I did live in America, actually, right before COVID moved home, which was really interesting. You're in Bermuda? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So most of my clients are still, I lived in um, Philly for a while, Boston for a while. I was with Deloitte Consulting before launching my own practice. Um, but I moved home about three and a half years ago. Um, but most of my clients are still in Canada and the UK. So it's crazy. The the travel's picking up again, but I am Bermuda's home base again. That is so cool. Uh, Well, what I have, have seen that in in the U S the, the school shootings, the mass shootings have, have just gotten ridiculous. And they say that, you know, and I've even had conversations with my children about it, where they would ask, why does somebody do that? And I was really careful not to say, well, they're crazy or they're bad or whatever. They say that they cannot categorize the shooters as being um, mentally ill. Usually it has everything to do with social exclusion and isolation and them feeling like the world is out to get them or that they've been. and, And I just thought, Wow, that actually humanized. Not that I want to humanize these people, but I didn't want I didn't want my kids to cast 
you know, cast people aside, you know, and understand, you know, why would somebody do that? And understand the implications of their behavior, of being inclusive, of noticing that kid who um, is crying or is not uh, being picked to be on the sports team or the social team. And so I think, you know, one of the things I'm very in tune with belonging, or at least that uh, concept is really important to me, because I think that's where it begins to change our culture is that inclusivity. What do you know that you wish other people could know? A lot of the things that I talk about in my book, I wish I knew sooner. Um, and it's, it's a lot around the concepts of like, I wish I focused on courage more than confidence and waiting to Mm. feel confident before getting things done. I wish I didn't look at risk taking as this overwhelming, scary black hole, but I had a method to approach it. You know, those are the things I wish I had faith. And I talk about this, that you can figure things out irrespective of the outcome in life and you can use those insights to grow. Like these are all things that are infused there. Um, That's a total game changer though, because I think myself included that external validation, I mean, social media, that is how we get our dopamine hits. And that is the productivity, the hustle culture. That's how we're defined. And so I personally am, am trying to strip that away and rebuild something that's healthier because I'm so externally validated. And I think as a culture, we are doing that. So I agree with you there. I think it's so hard. Like I think things the the need for external validation in today's world and constant comparisons is hard. And I mentioned this before, but we're just seeing people's highlight reels. And it's very mm-hmm. hard not to compare what's going on with you inside what with what's going on with someone else's outside. You're, yeah. you're not looking at their inside. And so in, in my book, I actually um, share the insights of Katie Taylor. And she was the CEO of Four Seasons um, Hotels and Resorts Global. And she said something like, choose your own internal benchmarks and, and use those, not external. And, and I think that's really important. Like we mm. need to think about what are our internal benchmarks? Is it how my family's doing? How my health is? Do I have a career goal? But this constant seeking for external validation, that extrinsic motivation, um, it can lead us to a cycle that eventually could lead in sadness. And you know, likes are just not enduring <laughs> in terms of happiness. No, right? they're not. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that's a perfect place to close our conversation. How can people find you and and read your book? Yeah, no, thank you so much. You've been so great and so insightful. And I'm just really excited about the work that you're doing. Um, so in terms of uh, reaching out to me, I can be found on LinkedIn, um, on Instagram under my name, Christy Hunter R. Scott, and then my website's christyhunterrscott.com. So it's all very easy. And there's information on my book, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk and Embrace Uncertainty and Launch a Brilliant Career. On my website, it's also available on Amazon. I also went through, got out of my own head and was courageous and recorded the audiobook as well, rather than getting an actor or actress to do it. Yes. So, um, so that's available for download as well. Um, so I really hope, I mean, my main thing that I just want to leave people with is this is an actionable tool or tool guide or kit. And it can be used as the format of a women's program, do a chapter a month, a book club, because it's all built on exercises and actionability. Thank you so much for your work and uh, what you're putting out there. It's really important. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for having me. 
I know this sounds weird, but I totally get turned on when I see women leading, stepping up, stepping out, and taking the reins. I hope that this conversation has inspired you to do more and to begin boldly. Big thanks to Christy Hunter Arscott. You can find her links, including the link to buy her new book, Begin Boldly, in the show notes. Thank you to the members of this Patreon community who are supporting Culture Changers. It takes quite a bit of resources on the back end to keep this show going, to handle the production, to change the culture, and continue bringing you great content. If you would like to be part of the movement and support the content and keep it going up and to the right in the proverbial hockey stick fashion, and get exclusive content and all episodes ad-free, Go sign up right now at patreon.com forward slash culture changers. You'll see all the goodies that you can do for as little as just a few bucks a month. And I will forever thank you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.